G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome back to Series 5 of This Week in Startups Australia. We've had a long break. There's a bit of a story there. But we're back with a show that is out of this world, literally. Space is the place for Australia's smartest entrepreneurs, where rocket science means exactly that, and where the delicate line between function and explosion is never very far away. To help guide us through this landscape, we've enlisted Australian space startup pioneer Tim Parsons, who will give us a map to the stars. Then we'll talk to Sabre Astronautic CEO Jason Held, who's building a surprising SaaS business, turning every desktop into mission control. All engines go on This Week in Startups Australia Space Special. This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by Creative3, Australia's largest conference for creative tech entrepreneurs and startups. Twista is also sponsored by Spaceship, where you can invest your super in tech companies you know and love. Find out more at spaceship.com.au. Not long after I moved to Australia, I met Tim Parsons. He was full of energy and ideas back then. That hasn't changed, though the focus of his work, that's changed. After working deep in the media and the technology sector, Tim pivoted skyward and now serves as the founding CEO of the Delta V Space Alliance and has a few other titles besides. There's probably no better person to talk about the space startup landscape in Australia. So, Tim, welcome to the space special episode of This Week in Startups Australia. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. All right, Tim. So what is going on in space now? Why is space, it's a coin upon, exploding right now? Space is exploding because a few years ago, a bunch of folks in NASA said, wow, let's take a look at a mobile phone. It has everything that a satellite has. It has an accelerometer, a computer, memory, camera. It has a battery. Wow, it even has an antenna for sending out signals. Um, in fact, a mobile phone has more. It has a nice touchscreen and stereo speakers. Let's send one of these into space. So they did that with an early Nexus phone. Literally put it in a satellite, put it into orbit. And the damn thing lasted two years. Wow. And that was a real eye-opener to an organisation and, in fact, an industry that was based on zero risk, no chance of failure, everything super waterfall process right. you can imagine, right? And also lots of, um, lots of huge expensive satellites that spent years and years and years to make. And because they spent so long to make, they had to stay up there for a long time to get ROI, and then that meant that they were even bigger, and you can see where the spiral right, goes. Right. So we had this thing called big space. Right. So there is this real discontinuity, a little black swan event, flying this mobile phone into space. <laughs> I have this image of someone strapping a rocket engine onto the back of an Nexus and letting it go. But yes. Pretty much. I think they just kicked it out of the airlock of the ISS, the International Space Station. Oh, no, yeah, there, there is one way to get into orbit, sure. That's it. And... So that actually gave a lot of folks this thought, wow, what if the fact that we've miniaturized every component... And made billions of them. Correct. What if that means we could make satellites that were 100 kilograms? Right. Hey, maybe even 10 kilograms. Maybe even as big as a Coke can. Right. And how much would it cost to launch one of those little suckers into space? Hey, maybe it would only be 
wow, maybe only be like 50 grand, maybe even okay, 10 now, grand. Okay, but now, to put this into perspective, how much does it cost? How much does one of these big satellites weigh and how much does it cost to put one of those big satellites in orbit? So a big geostationary satellite with a lifespan of so about... So geostationary means it's stationary. It's, it's 26,000 miles above the Earth and it stays in one position above the equator. Correct. Okay. So the, as the Earth rotates, it also spins around at the same rate. Right. So it appears to stay... Uh, station keeping over so a any, certain anything point that's like satellite broadcasting tends to use big spacecraft right. right and because they're quite far away they need big antenna and big antenna means big batteries big solar panels so you know these things are pretty big so a couple of tons and to put a couple of tons into orbit even the cheapest of the big boys spacex will still hit you up for about 60 to 80 million bucks so we're talking about something that's one thousandth the weight and one thousandth the price correct and in fact that thousand x has really launched a thousand companies. Right. So over the last seven to eight years now, because of that, and of course we're all inspired by Richard Branson, we're inspired by Elon Musk, but those guys are still, still big, 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 big. big. Yeah. correct. Um, all the all the folks that have decided we can make satellites and space services and systems for a thousand x less. Right. Well, they've raised about five billion dollars, and they've really put the bejeebas up big space because suddenly they realized that those guys, they've got a older workforce. Right. They've got really entrenched customer relationships, which are now under threat. Right. You've also got the GFC and you've got generational change with mm -hmm. a lot more digital natives coming through who want to apply a software mindset right. to building complex systems. Right. Iterate faster. We can't be sitting around in white lab coats for eight years waiting for the first launch. Well, you can if your client is the government and the government has, you know, a process and all of that. But now, of course, we have space at a thousand X price difference now has a different range of customers. So who are the new kinds of customers for? If it's not big space, are we calling this little space? What are we calling this now? Nano space or? Well, in fact, the big space guys are doing a bunch of little experiments now, especially just lately. So Australian Defence Force, for example, has been involved with a nano satellite project just a few months ago, right. which is flying Australian its sensors on it as mm -hmm. part of an international project. So those existing guys are starting to go, we better get into this new sector. What has happened, however, is that the kinds of applications for space systems that are emerging, things around IoT, mm -hmm. or actually individual farmers wanting to use data to go from prediction to decision, right. wanting to get access to an app for Earth observation right. that goes way beyond Google Maps. And, of course, we've seen companies like The Yield come out of Australia that require enormous inputs of this kind of data to be able to do data-driven agriculture for farmers in the field. Correct. And, in fact, we've come up with this notion of a space value chain or an atmosphere value chain where upstream we've got some companies that are de delivering space systems and sensors. Then we have a whole swage of folks in geospatial, like also like the yield, who are taking that data mm -hmm. and they're mashing up with ground data. Right. And then on the ground we have these brand new uh, customer groups emerging who want access to digital sensors, technology, machine learning, etc. So what you've described is a space stack, right? And it starts out, there's, there's you put stuff in the skies, it's generating data, and you have this layer of companies that are taking that data in and using it, and then you have the customers for the data. Correct. And what you're also seeing is a democratization of the APIs between those layers. Mm -hmm. So previously, 
to get data from Airbus, from let's say their Earth observation data, you had to pretty much commit to a multi-year contract worth many hundreds of thousands of dollars. Right. Airbus now is literally running a competition to allow people to get access to that data through an API mm-hmm. as, and, as, and, and hack it and hustle it and see what they can make of it to try to turn what was a very specialist industry and government product into something that actually is used everywhere. And and that's another thing that maybe a lot of people don't know about space. Um, let's just think about something really mundane, like going to an ATM and taking out money. Yeah. Now, the amount of transactions that are happening every day, well, obviously, even in Australia, they're in the billions and around the world, there'd be trillions of individual transactions. If you think about it, there's not that much time in the banking day to stuff up your timing. So in fact, all of the ATMs and all of the banking systems all have the same timing system. Mm -hmm. And where does that come from? Global positioning system satellites. It comes from space. Uh, Another another area of defense and cyber, uh, there's a 20-year-old technology where one ship in a flotilla of Navy vessels can actually take over the weapon systems of all of those other ships. That's a 20-year-old technology. Turns out... That that technology makes me very nervous, but move on. It turns out that that strategic capability is relatively easy to hack using today's (laughs) technology. And this is why it has me worried. Right. And so people are starting to say, okay, well, we need a new set of space technologies Mm -hmm. And gosh, a 10-year contract to develop them is going to take too long. We can't afford giant space programs. We need to get working with these little nanosat folks so we can iterate quicker, we can fail cheaper, and we can learn faster. Okay, give me a sense now of the customer makeup. Is is a large part of it defense and military and government, or is there now another class beyond just agriculturists? who need this information or who are using or working with space technologies. So we have folks who are carbon farmers, people who are reserving land to actually get the carbon credits. That's a really big emerging group. And they're doing this for verification purposes. Correct. We've also got lots of other verification around people clearing land. Mm -hmm. So again, government, but yes, more like local councils who want to understand... Are we managing our natural capital properly? And we want change detection. We don't just want a photo today. We want a historical record that shows what was there and then what is there now. Another thing you can do from space, which the mining industry is quite interested in, is using LiDAR technologies, you can actually do millimeter scale, millimeter scale elevation change detection uh, over a very large area. So things like the big... Tailings Dam collapse that we had last year mm-hmm. where I think it was Rio Tinto lost yes. a significant part of its market cap. Yeah. We could have picked that well, up. Because thousands of people were affected by Correct. it. Hundreds were killed. Yeah. Correct. And the guys in head office had no visibility of that problem. And the people in the mine, well, you can fire them, but that doesn't save lives and yeah. take, bring back that polluted land. Right. So, in so fa- it's around oversight as well. Correct, then. correct. And in, in fact, the insurance industry is another group, right, right who are looking well, at that. They're mitigating risk, absolutely. Exactly. And they're looking at things like climate change and extreme weather events. And they're, if you take a country like the Philippines, for example, they have now a Category 1 hurricane pretty much every year, if not a couple of years. Right. And so they're still trying to figure out how many schools and buildings are knocked over from the last one when the next one comes through. So those guys want to start using data as well. And, of course, they have very smart people who've been to really top universities Mm -hmm. both there and around the world, Mm -hmm. and they've come back to the Philippines and said, we should use a data model here. So really, you know, that classic Mark Andreessen comment, software is eating the world, space is a big part of that. 
when it comes to so software Earth- is eating space. Well, that's right, and and it's Earth-based value proposition. Mm-hmm. Now, there's another value proposition which is quite fascinating, which I hope your listeners will be in, interested in, which is what's called the in-space economy. Now, this is starting to emerge, and I'll give you a very simple example. Those big geostationary satellites we talked about earlier, mm. they have a lifespan, not because the electronics fritz, because they run out of fuel. They yeah, ru- to, to keep themselves in correct orbit. Correct. Right? And if they drift too far out of the box they're in, yeah. actually there's huge contractual penalties. So, so they're going to hit some other satellite and then all of a sudden it's the plot of gravity. Or it's even worse than that. The beam that they have attached to the vehicle is fixed. So if they travel too far, right. people don't get their prem- Premier League oh. anymore. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> that much worse. Be much more serious. <laughs> yeah. You're right. Now, um, folks are actually realising that with these new class of spacecraft and space systems, they could go up mm. and refuel them. Ah. potentially even go up, attach a new vehicle, a new propulsion system to that spacecraft and give it another five-year life. And if they did that for one of these big babies, they could earn as much as 50 million bucks to do that. You're saving all of the costs of putting another big baby up. Correct. And so we're starting to see the emergence of an in-space economy where um, also United Launch Alliance... So it's like the fueling station, the the refilling station, the servo in space. Exactly. The the United Launch Alliance guys are literally... You know how Elon's flying back the first stage? Right. Well, the ULA ULA guys are starting to leave the second stage Mm -hmm. in orbit. Mm -hmm. And with this... Rather than having it burn up. Correct. And people like Goldman Sachs, big international financing company, have realized that things like off-Earth mining, Mm. they can sell a bond now on the future value of those resources because they think they're going to be so enormous. All right. Where does Australia fit into this very big picture that you've just painted? Okay, so Australia already spends about $3 billion a year on space services and systems. And most of that goes out of the country, I take Correct. And also, we spend that money quite inefficiently across about 25 different institutions just on the government side, let alone from the corporate side. Now, one of the things that we could be doing in spending that large amount of money is actually leveraging it to create domestic capability. And we have to really try now to look at examples like the UK where they woke up to the fact that they were already spending a lot of money on space research, Mm -hmm. but their companies weren't winning or even participating in the bids for the systems and services that those contracts required. And why? Why wasn't that happening? Partly because the British government was a little reticent to get involved in some of those projects, like the International Space Station and the Mars lander missions that the European Space Agency proposed. And the reason they decided to get involved in the end was this business case, which was if we're involved, if we actually put money on the table, our companies are going to deliver the services that are required to deliver it. And sure enough, a British company won the contract for the descent stage of the European Mars lander project, which is coming up. So we're we're looking at all the amazing talent we have in this country. Mm. We're looking at the fact that Australia is responsible for one-sixth of the world's airspace and land space from a search and rescue point of view. And we're also anticipating that we have a the world's fastest growing economies to the north of us who are going to need all these data services. So we say, why can't we actually grow a entrepreneurial, venture-focused space community on the back of our science and our... So where does Delta V fit into all of that? 
So Delta V was founded by some universities and some startups who decided to just start collaborating. Right. And we drew in more and more folks and we basically mentored each other. Mm-hmm. And we introduced each other to venture capital folks. We learned how to work like startups, but how to work like deep tech startups, hardware startups, right. software startups, all wrapped up into one. Right, and people who are solving problems rather than just sort of producing solutions. Correct, and we had to actually train ourselves to be more customer-focused and less solution-focused, mm. right? Because, mm. you know, the solutions are pretty exciting. And what has happened is, is that we gained a modicum of credibility over time. Our folks got smarter and smarter as they learned and, you know, we did a lot of pitches and we got turned away. Yeah. Most people were very excited by space, but they didn't really understand the business proposition. And then we started to have some breakthroughs. And in fact, in the last nine months, we've had some big, big breakthroughs, about $12 million in total invested, mostly from Australian investors, mm-hmm. in several companies. And those companies are doing a whole range of different things. Delta V, we were involved in helping advise the investors as part of their due diligence, but also on a personal, professional level, giving support to those startup teams where we could. Um, and there are some teams who didn't need a lot of support from us. So, um, But we've really tried to also establish entrepreneurship as part of deep tech. So it's not something that is just in the lab. It's not something that is just for large institutions. Actually, we think entrepreneurs can have a big difference, can make an impact. And uh, Plug Australia's, Australia's got some amazing unfair advantages. We can really plug into the US and European system pretty easily mm. from a relationship and a culture point of view. So actually leverage that and do that to get more Australians into space, more Australian systems into space and have that nice feedback loop start to develop an ecosystem. So, Tim, what we're going to do is we're going to go to a break. And when we come back, we're going to be speaking with the CEO of one of the Delta V consortium companies, uh, Jason Held from Sabre Astronautics. And he's going to talk to us about one of the best ideas I've heard in a while about basically turning every PC into mission control. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Mark Pesci. I'd like to take a minute to tell you about Twista's latest sponsors, Creative3, Australia's latest conference for creative tech entrepreneurs and startups. On September 22nd, Creative3 brings together entrepreneurs, innovators, investors for a one-day forum covering areas like virtual reality, animation, games, fashion, film, and entertainment. This year, Creative3 will feature Margaret Wallace, CEO of Playmatics. Tim Ruse of Zero Latency, Annie Parker of Code Club Australia, SOSV's William Baubeen, plus many more talented folks sharing the secrets of their creative successes. Creative 3 has sold out seven years in a row, so don't miss out. Buy your ticket at creative3.com.au before August 22nd to save $50. We'll see you there, because yeah, I'm the MC. Creative 3, it's where you need to be. It's not all making rockets go up without exploding. Space needs software too. And it's not just the software that makes rockets go up without exploding. There's a lot of data to manage, and a hotshot Sydney startup has been doing just that. Sabre Astronautics has a product called Piggy, the predictive ground station. And to unroll that for us, both as product and as business, is Sabre Astronautics CEO Jason Held. Jason, Welcome to this week in Startups Australia's Space Special. All right, great, thanks. All right, so 
let's just step back. What is the product? The Predictive Ground Station Project, uh, Piggy as we affectionately call it, it, it is software. It sits in your satellite ground station and allows you to understand everything that's happening both inside and outside the satellite. Just the easiest way to describe it is think of Space Command in a box. Right, so in, but that's pretty impressive right there. What yeah. do you, I mean, Space Command is now integrating a bunch of different data sets that are coming in from a bunch of different things and presenting them in some integrated way that allows people to be able to make decisions on that, right? Yeah, but that's part of the problem because there is no one single tool that, that does it. Even at Space Command, there are at least a dozen different tools. You've got to be able to control the dish. You've got to be able to know where everything's at. You need to be able to understand what's, what they're doing. You need to be able to diagnose problems that, that happen. Uh, you need to be able to do conjunction analysis, which is a fancy way of saying make sure things don't collide. Right, exactly, right? at very high speeds. At very high speeds, you know, so. Right. This is the, not only do you have to get the ro rocket up without exploding, you have to make sure it doesn't hit anything. That's right, and these days things are getting more and more congested, you know, so you need real space traffic control. And I think we're seeing in the space industry the, the, the transition between barnstorming like we had in the early days of aviation to where, okay, things can actually hit each other by accident now. you, you got to uh, find a ways to, to, to manage that. Okay, so uh, what is going on here? I mean, you have Space Command. Space Command is a very, very big system, tens of millions of dollars, hundreds sure. of employees. And now you have something that is essentially what you're doing is a software as a service package. That's right, that's right. And so people can just subscribe to it for how many dollars a month? Uh, the casual license is $15 a month. Now, casual license, what kind of person would be using a casual license? Well, we've, we've had people, mostly university students have picked it up because they have to do research reports and things like that. And right. They're trying to learn space. Okay. So universities are picking it up and saying, all right, we've got 30 students who want to learn space engineering. It's quick, it's easy, it's cheap, you know, compared to- $180 a year, it's nothing, yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 it's not hard, it's like a textbook. Um, but we're also finding high schoolers who just want to have a play and, and, and look where, because you could connect with the NORAD satellite catalog at the unclassified level and just download the ISS location. And <laughs> right. yeah, some of this you could get online anyway, yeah. right? But it's, it's, it's the point is it's all in one package. So they could calculate you know, how much fuel you would need, uh, what's the delta V to go from Earth to Mars. And so if you want to do a so bit of- So this is Kerbal Space Program, but for grown-ups is what we're saying. Yeah, here. yeah, kind of, kind of. You know, so so we, we put, for a while, we we're experimenting with like, you know, space so easy your kids can use it. Right. Yeah, and because- and Well, Kerbal's not easy to use. I mean, any, any grown-up or kid who's tried to use it knows that. Yeah, yeah, maybe. But but I, I got a lot of respect for Kerbal yeah. for, for what they did. I think we got a, you know, a lot of, uh, 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 a lot of space love coming out of there. In yeah. fact, we get, I'll tell you, this is really funny because we, we have an internship program. We got 150 applicants a year for our internship program. Right. It's one of our company's strengths, right? Half of the internship, well, I'm not gonna say half, but a good number of intern applicants actually have Kerbal Space Program on their CVs, oh, yeah. right? So we're like, well, wait a second. You know, like the whole gaming environment, there's all this crossover that's historically happened between gaming and, and space flight software. Right. So Well, it's a simulation. I mean, Kerbal is a simulation that is good enough that when you start using the real thing, that's right. like Piggy, then you actually, you can feel like there's a very natural crossover. All right, let's step back. How did you get into space? How did oh, man. Sabre get into space? <laughs> I mean, it's... One of the themes of this show is that really over the last, say, 36 months, there's been an explosion in this space now, right? Uh, yeah. And are you part of that? Did you come from before that? Yeah, I've been a space engineer for about 20 years. And, and what happened was, I mean, I, I don't want to give my whole life story about this because, uh, I mean, I grew up, my mother was a 
failed science fiction writer. She, she wrote for like Architectural Digest and things like that, but she tried to do novels for, for space, and so I always kind of had it in there, and, and part of the, the Star Wars generation when that came right. out, that, you know, um, and, and I never had good grades as, in high school. I barely graduated high school, was a, uh, a slightly below average student as an undergrad. I didn't okay. find myself until I was, I, people ask, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, I want to be a Jedi, you know, kind of. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I joined the Army, and, and as what you do when you get a lot of energy and, and don't really know where to apply it in, in the States, just going to the Army. Um, and as, as, as part of that, uh, it got to a point where I I'd always kind of had that passion, and uh, then they formed Space Command, mm-hmm. and I applied to, to get in. My, my commander wouldn't let me leave the artillery. He says, what are you, what are you an idiot? Yeah, this is the ground force. You, know, you don't join you. So I can't. Space Command's like artillery, but with bigger, yeah, right. bigger rockets. They said, let the Air Force guys do that. You know, we're keeping you here in Korea. So I said, okay, I quit, right? And, uh, and, right. and I resigned my commission, and I moved to Colorado, uh, and I ended up getting jobs at, uh, at, at uh, Ball Aerospace working on Hubble and the ISS. And mm-hmm. then September 11th happened, I got pulled back into the military mm-hmm. in Space Command, where I wanted to be in the first huh. place. Okay. So, uh, you know, the, to make it, I, I'm going to shorten this. I don't want to take all your time with this, but uh, I ended up in Australia uh, back in 2004 looking for a master's, ended up with a PhD and a wife. Right. And when <laughs> okay. I graduated is when I found it, Saber Astronautics. Okay, so this then represents, I guess, everything that you'd already learned from Space Command and from all of your years really working in aerospace. Did it represent, I guess, the a changing capacity? Because doing Space Command would have been difficult even just, I think, 10 or 15 years ago with the computers and the networks that we had. Has that been an aspect of this, that you have cloud computing and all of these other resources available? Yeah, I mean, in, in part, I gotta tell you, like, Piggy as a product represents uh, a solution to everything that pissed me off when I was at Space Command. <laughs> okay. Okay, so, so uh, satellite control these days, even the most modern opera, like if you look at the SpaceX operations and all these things, it's very text-based interfaces. Really? Yeah. Okay. Uh, software in the space industry is about 15 years behind the rest of the world. Uh, is there a reason? I mean, is very it... logical reasons. Well, there's two. There's one. There's, there's one. There's institutional barriers because right. people once they have some and, and big space, large satellites that like Hubble, you know, yeah. these billion-dollar NBN code, two and a half billion-dollar program is is you know size of a Greyhound bus. They, they, they previously would take about 15 years from start to, to, right. to you know. Well, they um, still do with a major space satellite, like a research satellite. Yeah, sure. absolutely. Like, I mean, the, the, the Hubble instrument I worked on, I wrote the flight software for Widefield Camera, mm-hmm. and it, was, it, it didn't get launched until 10 years later when I was here in Australia, and right. boy, did I get drunk. It was a great party, right? Uh, it's a major life event for a space engineer for yeah. that, right? But uh, nowadays, the cycle is, is, is shortening up, right? So the incentive to create something new while you're already flying mm-hmm. isn't there. Right. So the, the incentive is keep it text simple, simple to implement, not simple to use. So the result is you have to have PhDs, really experienced people who knows how to use these text-based interfaces, kind of like the matrix. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, or like... You know, old-time computing, which, where I yeah. hail from, which was all done on a command line, and you have to know all of your commands and how you put them all together and how you make them all work. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, it's exactly what it is. It's like all like macro-driven, and yeah, and yeah. So, you, so you get it. Okay, so we're now in this sea change where space is opening up. This is part of the theme of this episode. You know, yeah. we're now seeing, and I was mentoring a company that was coming out of Sydney Uni that was trying to build a rocket to put sort of the kilogram-sized packages up into orbit and yep. do this for $50,000 a shot or things like this. And 
Are we starting to see, is that starting to change the way people would be using a package like yours? So it's not just about knowing what's up there, but it's we have this actual space-based startup, we're trying to do things cheap, yep, yep. and that your software is then a key element yeah, to making that happen. It's a radical change, uh, and, and, and this is what's actually happening, right? So about 10 years ago, uh, the small satellite class CubeSat, as they, right. as they call them, they, yeah, they, they became an academic exercise in the last five years when they started doing the first commercial companies, in the last three years when those commercial companies exited, mm. not to the tune of two to, to, to 500 million. Um, and uh, Australia's woken up with this as an opportunity, and so is every other country. And so you're starting to see the very beginning of that, that exponential curve that you see when a real disruption happens. Right. Um, and the curve is real because it's been sustained for the last, you know, you see the growth in the last three years now. Uh, we don't really know where it's going to end. But um, we're, we're seeing the, the kind of customers that are coming to me today are saying things like, Jason, I'm going to launch 100 satellites in a constellation. Yeah which previously would require billions of dollars in infrastructure, and now they're, they're raising it off of a Series A, five million. Yeah, I was gonna to say, their, so five, 10 yeah, million dollars, yeah, right. So, and, and then the level up after that will be about 50, where they could really execute right. uh, uh, the, the so consumer portion. It is gonna start getting crowded up there. There's just no, Absolutely. I mean. Absolutely. Which yep. means the, the piggy becomes more important for precisely that reason. Two, two reasons. That's one of them, right? The other one, which we, we were really looking ahead on, is, is like, okay, you have to manage those assets. You cannot mm. manage 100 satellites off a text-based interface. You can't do it. How are you going to No one gonna has manage, that memory. Right? No one has the memory. No, you're, you're going to need, an, an, you know, you got uh, a, a room full of, you know, a team of 16 space operators to run one large spacecraft. Right. And they're saying they reduce the size to reduce the, the cost. Right. But now you've launched 100 of them, you've order of magnitude increased the operational complexity. Right. And if you look at companies that are doing this today, uh, their solution is, well, we don't care if the spacecraft dies, it's small, we'll launch another one. But they, the moment that it, it becomes important to their customers, right. oh, um, yeah. Yeah, then, then yeah. You know, that changes. Yeah. All right. So then are we seeing, I guess, an evolution to what is a more sort of cloud-based approach for all of this, where rather than a company building a big facility, I mean, SpaceX has a big facility, you know, for you sure. see it on the videos. Sure. Is it really going to be much more that a company is going to be more virtual in the sense that a lot of that infrastructure, a lot of that software infrastructure is going to be something that they're going to use as a service? Absolutely. Cloud has been, cloud has certainly been important even for the big non-disruptive missions. Uh, even the traditional big space, as they call them, needs cloud just to handle customer volume. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I don't see cloud, as, it was cloud's important as part of the infrastructure, but it's, it's not really core to the um, uh, story, in my opinion, for how do you control and operate spacecraft, because mm -hmm. it's always kind of been there. Um, okay, where do you see Sabre going over the next five years as we ramp up exponentially? Where do you see Sabre in that ecosystem of companies? We're looking at machine learning because we've got about a decade experience of machine learning right. for diagnostics. Right. And we're looking at ways to apply it in other uh, aspects of the space control problem. So uh, looking at very highly accurate location of targets. Mm -hmm. um, we're looking at uh, going from... Uh, ground analysis to on-orbit analysis, which which changes things. So so you know if you're going to Mars, mm. uh, the time delay between Earth and Mars is 20 minutes. Yeah. 
So you know, when, when Tom Hanks goes, Houston, we have a problem, uh, 20 minutes later, Houston responds, you can't right. have that scenario. You need some intelligence on board. Right. Um, so we're looking at that. Uh, and a lot of very creative, just iteratively adding in each one of those things along the value chain that you need to, to go from, I have an idea, mm -hmm. to actually flying your mission, right? And that, that's what we're looking at, that whole value chain. Right so a lot of people have ideas right now. Sure. There aren't that many missions being flown yet. So what does it take to then take all of the, the roadblocks and the bumps, the speed bumps along that way and smooth them out? And what happens once that happens? Okay, so first off, I, I mean, as the expression goes, no bucks, no buck riders. Right. So you, you need the very first step, they have an idea. What you want to do is, is let them prove mathematically operationally that their mission can work and service customers. Mm -hmm. So uh, we've had several customers in who said, listen, uh, we want to prove to an investor that uh, we can fly because right. we want to raise our five million Series A. So uh, either they use Piggy themselves or they hire us out as, as contractors, right, consultants. Uh, and we've done that a few times. Where so you build the simulation to prove that they're doing the right thing. They, they could do it, but it's not just about, I mean, there's, there's a whole bunch of, you've got to tie in the satellite communicator. You've got to show that. The, you, you, we're using the software to, to calculate the addressable market. Right. Okay, so your customers are in this part of the world. Your satellites are flying in this orbit. It exports the amount of time overhead, time mm -hmm. multiplied by your data rate, mm -hmm. you know, divided by your cost per product, mm -hmm. equals how much money you're going to make. Right. Uh, and they take that to, to secure frequency allocation from the ITU, and then they, they take that to an investor to get investment. Uh, and we've seen this happen a few times. Already. So you are, you are the spreadsheet for space. Sure, if you, yeah, sure. I mean, you, well, you let people run the numbers is what I'm saying, right? Yeah, that, that's yeah. really what you're doing. I mean, this is the entry point. It's like, it's the yeah. gateway drug to doing space, right? <laughs> it's, it's mission analysis like the gateway drug, right? I, f I feel like the, the guy from Breaking Bad, you know, he's, <laughs> The first hit is, the first flight is free. The first flight is free, yeah, sure. Jason, thank you very much for being on This Week in Startups Australia's Space Special. My pleasure. Hi, this is Mark again. We've had this really long break from April through August. You might be wondering why. Well, earlier this year, I was approached to do another podcast, this one about the future. The next billion seconds are going to be the most important in history. And on that podcast, we talk to the folks who are deeply involved in making that future. Their insights can help us make decisions today that will leave us better off tomorrow. I invite you to visit Podcast One Australia at podcastone.com.au. Have a listen. Download the Podcast One app through the App Store or through Google Play. Listen on the go. I'm very happy with the work we're doing on that podcast, and I know you'll enjoy our tour through the next billion seconds. Okay, we're back on the space special, talking to Tim Parsons. Welcome back, Tim. So Jason has an amazing business where he's really putting, as he says, Space Command onto every desktop. And I mean, you know, he worked in Space Command, so of course he can do that. Where is all of this going? If we're seeing Mission Control becoming a SaaS app, if we're seeing this stack of applications in the sky and in the middleware and on the ground, 
Where over the next couple of years is all of this going? Where should we be looking and where should investors be placing their bets on space in Australia? Well, it's a fantastic question. Um, well, the investors so far are really excited about IoT. Right. And there's this great problem in IoT that is actually not spoken about that much. And it's about remote access. Yeah. Australia, because it's such a huge... <laughs> because it's all remote. Right? Such a huge country with such a small population, pretty much connectivity falls off 30, 40 kilometres out of town. Yes, there are 3G networks, but they're not that stable. And one of the interesting things that we're discovering in IoT land is that once you instrument a farm and you start making all the animals and all the systems dependent on those systems, you can't afford any downtime. Right. So space systems to help with that remote connectivity is an area which is actually growing a lot. And, and particularly in Australia, because we have so much land, because so much of it is agriculture, there's an actual need for farm uptime. Correct. And in fact, people like KPMG are believing that the entire agricultural and manufacturing value chains are going to be transformed by having sensor data at all parts of that supply right. sequence. The other area of space investment is in launch. Mm -hmm. Amazingly... So are we actually going to see craft launch from Australia? We point? are. And I say that pretty confidently because the people now driving launch in Australia mm. are actually relatively quiet about it, but they're very capable people. Mm -hmm. And the one company that's really appeared on the horizon and is now actually kicking a lot of goals, a company called Gilmore Space Technologies, mm -hmm. founded by Adam Gilmore and his brother James. Who, he's actually a former Citibank broker, mm -hmm. and he's someone who successfully started companies in Singapore, and he has put together a really exciting team, and they've based on the strengths of that team and based on their approach, which is to do a whole series of suborbital missions steadily growing in scale of vehicle and in performance until they hit uh, orbit. Where are they launching from? They're right? going. Th that is a very interesting question. So some folks are... Another group is also looking at launch facility near Darwin, yeah. which is very good for equatorial launch. Yeah. In fact, Woomera is in a better position than most of the world's yeah. launch pads. So that's an option as well. Mm. And that, and that's really a good option for Polar, which is another very valuable orbit. Yeah. Okay, so we actually have a couple of very decent... Because I, mean, I pointed at Darwin and people go, no, no, no. Actually, it's really quite good. I know Woomera because there's an existing facility there. Now, all of this is against the context of the fact that the federal government is now looking at the Space Act, right? And has, in fact, gotten this very bright man from UNSW to review the Space Act. Do What's going on with that? And what, what is the Space Act? What is that going to mean for startups as we see that review of the Space Act? So the main challenge with the Space Act to date has been it's been targeted at big company projects. Right, so, because it costs about a half a million dollars to get the actual licensing and things like this, which tends to be a big barrier to startups. I think if you if you actually dig into it 
you can get that price way down mm. by doing what's called a probable loss calculation. Okay. But it's complicated. It's pretty opaque. Right. And for the average startup, it can feel like a, a, an absolute blocker. So, in fact, most of the startups that have launched just recently have ended up getting ministerial waivers because the process has been so painful. Right. So part of that Space Act review is to make it easier for small companies to get access to space without having to buy loads and loads of insurance. Mm -hmm. But there's another aspect to it, which is that the Space Act doesn't take into account your satellite turning into space junk. So, in fact, we're hoping... Australia may even lead a, a global movement towards ensuring that when you put up your spacecraft or your space systems, you also have a reasonably bulletproof mechanism to get it down. And that hasn't happened until right now. So lately. basically a space recycling plan. Essentially, right. exactly. And I think that will be part and parcel of that Space Act review. So there's a chance that our Space Act could then be a best practice that would be adopted by other space agencies and other regulatory authorities around the world. That's right. And also a whole range of new products and services required to help deorbit spacecraft in yeah. a predictable way. Yeah. And something else people may not be aware of is that that large area near Woomera is actually one of the best places in the world to land space systems. Of course... Skylab, which I remember, went down somewhere around there in bits and pieces as well. And a Japanese Hayabusa mission, in fact, deliberately oh, yeah. landed a few years ago. Yeah. Now, it's interesting that the Japanese want to run a second mission. And right now they're complaining to us that they can't find anyone to talk to about how they get access to that. So right. we're not that organised in Australia yet. Right. And that's part of this second move that's happening, which is towards some kind of space agency that can fulfil the role of a sovereign country in international obligations, mm -hmm. international um, contracts and relationships. And we want to leverage that not just for scientists, but for startups. We want to leverage that for new companies. We want to hope we want a space agency 2.0. We don't want NASA. We don't want ESA. We don't want an old-style, big space space agency. And yet you know that's the first place that a minister is going to want to go. So what's going to talk the minister out of doing things the big, old-fashioned way? In fact, I'd say in Australia, we've resisted having that big, old-fashioned space agency. Yeah, that's why we kind of don't have one at all. You're right. Yeah, and I think a lot of people um, you know, say, oh, we should be ashamed that we don't have a space agency. In fact, I think we should congratulate congratulate ourselves and how smart we've been because we have piggybacked on a lot of other folks' right. expenditure and we've right. done really, really well. But the moment of, you know, being a really smart freeloader I think is coming to an end and we need now to take a leadership role. And in that sense, we can leapfrog to the front of the pack if we have a space agency that's actually quite agile, mm. that's doing something in a very strategic way, leverage that $3 billion a year, leverage all the money that we spend in science, $10 billion a year, and in defence, many, many billion dollars a year, and also our corporate sector who have a lot of big problems and big global opportunities if they are using space data in a smarter way than other countries. So what you're saying is there's really never been a more exciting time to be in space. It is the moment, and it's the moment for Australia to shine. And in fact, this September in Adelaide, Adelaide's going to experience the largest ever conference they've held of any type, which is the International Astronomical Congress. Mm. And we'll have all the astronauts and all the different space agencies flying into Adelaide for a whole week in September. And our hope as part of Delta V with a whole lot of other partners is actually to showcase Australian new space and spatial startups 
who are trying to take on this new realm and demonstrate to the government, yeah, you've got folks that you can get behind. We'll show you the leadership. Get behind us and let's see what we can do. Tim, this has been an amazing tour through space. Thank you for joining us on the Space Special episode of This Week in Startups Australia. Thank you, Mark. It was really fun. Big thanks to Twista sponsors Creative3 and Spaceship. Their support makes this podcast possible. Thanks to Felix Wormuth and AnalogCabin.net for his hard work creating a podcast that is consistently a joy to listen to. Thanks to Tim Parsons and Jason Held for taking the time to come on our show. We will be back in a fortnight with another special episode, our second on virtual reality. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia.